0: And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Chapter 2? Gospel of John, Chapter 2. If you're new with us, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And actually began this section last week. We want to continue in it, starting with Verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Here in this passage, guys, Jesus cleanses the temple, as we just read. Apparently he cleansed it twice. Uh, Once at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded here in John 2, and then again at the end of his ministry, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. Now, just by way of quick, quick review, the temple of God in Jesus' day was a place where animals were brought to the priests and then sacrificed to atone for the people's sin. This was necessary uh, for God and man to come together for the purpose of fellowship. Sin had divided man. We know that uh, in the Garden of Eden, man and God and man, Adam and Eve, had perfect fellowship. But uh, when they sinned against God and ate the forbidden fruit, a gulf opened up. Uh, sin separated them from God. God said, the, day, the soul that sins shall surely die. So they should have been killed for their sins. However, God in his mercy instituted a, uh, a sacrificial system whereby a substitute uh, would die in their place, uh, uh, an animal uh, whose blood would atone. The word is cover. Cover their sins, of course, until the ultimate sacrifice uh, would come. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. So the temple was a place of sacrifice where God and man could come together for fellowship. It was also a place of worship and prayer. We'll study that more in a moment. It also had one more important function that we looked at last time. If you remember last week, we talked about the uh, courts of the temple. And these courts went from ground level up, up, up until you came to the uppermost court, the court of the priests, where the temple building actually sat. And we talked about this, and um, as you went up the, from the court of the Gentiles, ground level, uh, you went up 14 stairs to a level area, a stone wall around the entire perimeter of the temple from that point on, signs along the, uh, along the wall that said basically any Gentile caught beyond this point will have themselves to blame for their ensuing death. From that point, you walked up five more stairs to the court of the women, all right? That wall, though, between Jew and Gentile became a visible barrier between God's covenant people and all the rest, all right? Paul mentions this in Ephesians 2, I believe, when he said that in Christ, God tore down the middle wall of partition uh, that separated Jew and Gentile and from the two made, made one new man in Christ. It was always God's intention to save Gentiles. It was always his intention, and we see it right here in the design of the temple, how that on the very bottom court, you had the court of the Gentiles. Now, this was a place where Gentile seekers could come, and the idea was there were supposed to be priests all around the court of the Gentiles who would be there to answer questions. These Gentile seekers would maybe want to know, uh, would definitely want to know more about the God of Israel, and priests were there to answer questions and pray with them, and the idea was that... um, Uh, that they may want to convert to Judaism, which often they did. So that was to be the first uh, exposure to the temple, the covenant of God, this area. But of course, as we studied last time, the Sadducees and chief priests who who owned basically this area, they controlled it, the the whole temple area. But they had filled it with um, those who sold animals because uh, an animal had to be perfect when it was offered to God. And if you brought your animal to the priest there to be sacrificed, he would look it over and look it over until he found one little freckle or a little pimple or a blemish. Reject it. And then you'd have to buy one of their pre-approved kosher animals at the inflated price. Uh, ten times higher than you could buy an animal out in the street. Also, people who wanted to give an offering to God couldn't use, temple, uh, couldn't use Roman currency, forbidden had to give God an offering with temple shekels. Okay, who cares? Except again, they were charging exorbitant exchange rates to change the Roman coinage into temple shekels. Ripping people off who wanted to worship God. Such a travesty that Jesus went in there and he cleaned house. He cleaned house. All right? And uh, we just read that in our text this morning. That was a, that's a quick review of what we looked at last time. If you want to. Look at the whole study here. Listen to the whole study. You can go online and uh, and, uh, pull that down and listen to it. Uh, But what about the temple of God in our day? That was the temple of, of God in Jesus' day. What about the temple of God in our day? Well, I'm sure most of you are thinking, but there's no temple of God in Jerusalem today. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and that's true. That's true. But in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that today God dwells in the temple of his church, of his church. And last week we saw how that it wasn't until Jesus cleansed the temple in his day of all the corruption and defilement that it could be again used for the purpose God designed it to be, a house of prayer, a house of worship, and a house of healing. We'll talk about that all in a moment. If the church of Jesus Christ today is God's temple, and it is, As I look at the church today in general, not any church in particular, but the church of Jesus Christ in general, I can see that there is a lot of corruption that has entered into the church, and it's hindering the work God really wants to do in and through the local church. And so Jesus has to cleanse house today if the church is going to be all that he wants it to be and do all that he has designed it to do. Uh, And I do think the Lord has begun to clean house We'll talk about that more in a second as well. Now, we started looking, you know, the, the idea is, well, we want to look at, well, what is the church to be? <laughs> okay, what is the church, to, what is the purpose that's to fulfill for which God created it? And so we just started looking at this last week, and we said, look, before we look at, the, before we look at what the church is to be, Let's first take a little time looking at, at it, looking at what it is not to be, is not to be. And this is not an exhaustive list. I'm just going to give you a couple of main ones that, to me, stand out. The church is not to be a money-making business. In Mark 11, 15, and 16, we read, So Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem, And Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of money uh, in the seats of those who sold doves, drove everybody out. He would not allow anyone to carry wares, commerce, through the temple. John 2.16, And those who sold doves, he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise in other words guys jesus forbid the house of god from being turned into uh, a business a business we touched on this last week let me just say this the commercialization of the church takes different forms one form that is very popular today is running the church like a corporation of course when you think of a corporation you think of an entity that is designed to make money nothing wrong with that if you're a secular entity The problem is, in the last, I don't know how many years, uh, many churches and pastors have adopted that model for the church. And so they're looking at the church as a corporation that looks to market the church to people, it sees as potential customers. These customers then purchase a variety of goods and services, which enriches the corporation, gives it a healthy bottom line, and allows it to franchise itself into new markets. That's what's going on in the church today. This gets into the next point under the heading, what the church is not to be. Number two, the church is not to be a place where pastors and preachers are turned into celebrities who then exploit their congregations for personal gain. Let me read to you out of 2 Peter 2. You can write this down, verses 1 and 3. Peter said, but there were also false prophets in Israel. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will cleverly teach destructive heresies. Verse 3, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. In other words, their day is coming. But Peter's telling us, guys, that just as false prophets and false teachers had infiltrated into the ranks of God's people Israel in the Old Testament period." Well, he's warning us that uh, so too in similar fashion these false teachers and religious phonies would infiltrate uh, and infect God's people in the New Testament church. And notice that Peter puts his finger on the one thing that would characterize all of them, their attempt to use their quote-unquote ministries to make money off of the people of God. Now this came to pass in the first century. Uh, You had many people who were uh, fulfilling Peter's prophecy. The church was loaded with these folks and in fact the early church had a name, name for these wolves in sheep's clothing. It called them, listen, Christ merchants, Christ merchants, those who sold Jesus like a commodity for personal gain. You don't have to turn to this, but Paul said, all the apostles said in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17, you see, we are not like the many hucksters. Let me stop there. There were so many of these characters running around, Paul had to use himself in contrast. Now look, here's all these guys, I'm sure he warned them about, but in contrast to them, we're not like these hucksters. All right? who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God in sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Ooh. If more of these characters understood that, that God is watching everything they do in his name, and they're going to have to stand before him someday and give an account, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes on the day of judgment. Ripping little old, old ladies off on fixed incomes, taking their last 10 bucks from their Social Security check, who sends it into some charlatan because, you know, she believes in this guy as a man of God. And, of course, he's driving, uh, you know, a Rolls-Royce or something and living in a palatial mansion somewhere. And we'll talk about them more in a second as well. Christ merchants. To me, that's the ultimate blasphemy. Reducing Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, to a commodity to profit off of instead of honoring him as Lord of Lords, Lords, King of Kings, the one who you ought to bow immediately and worship and serve with your whole life. Paul talked about these greedy charlatans in 1 Timothy 6. He said these so-called ministers, quote-unquote, he said they have corrupt minds and preach that godliness, Christianity, is a way to become wealthy. Of course, they're not around anymore, but I just want to let you know what was going on back then. Paul said, have nothing to do with them. Guys, the word minister has become a title in a lot of circles today. The minister. Who are you? I am the minister. And it's a badge of honor. It's a celebrity title, okay? And guys who take it upon themselves feel that they ought to be, you know, pampered (laughs) and served like some kind of celebrity title a lot of professional clergymen have taken but the word in the greek means servant same word that was used of jesus in matthew uh, 28 excuse me uh, chapter 20 verse 28 he said i have not come to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many guys too many ministers today are celebrities not servants Those who are in the ministry to be served and along the way to make a lot of money off of God's people. Now, I believe Jesus is beginning to clean house. I've seen in the last few years some celebrity pastors have been removed from ministry. What the Bible says, judgment begins where? The house of God. Because we know better. That's why James says, don't hurry into the teaching ministry, brethren knowing that we will incur the more strict judgment. You claim to speak for God, you claim to uh, t- you claim to teach God's word, knowing what he has said, you better make sure you're living it. Because if you're using God's word to make money off of, well, you're going to stand before him someday and give an account. Y- these guys are nothing more than Holy Spirit <clears throat> hucksters. Holy Spirit hucksters, celebrity pastors and preachers, who I've heard, if you ask them to come and speak at your church, your, your conference, whatever it might be, convention, first of all, they have a minimum a number of people that you have to have there. Sometimes it's 5,000, sometimes more. So you have to guarantee them at least that many people. Um, and then I hear that some of these guys, uh, you, you, they'll only come out if you pay for a first-class ticket, round-trip ticket, um, put them up in a five-star hotel and then give them X amount of dollars, usually many thousands of dollars for them to come out as an honorarium and then you have give them permission to promote their own ministry and take an offering for their own ministry. One man of God said years ago, his name is Arthur W. Pink, he said, and I quote, false prophets are to be found in circles of the most orthodox and pretend to have a fervent love for souls, yet they fatally delude multitudes concerning the way of salvation. They don't teach the truth. These pulpit, platform, and pamphlet hucksters, we could add radio and TV. Not that everyone and radio is bad, but you get my point. Um, they, they, these hucksters have wantonly lowered the standard of divine holiness And so adulterated the gospel in order to to make it palatable to the carnal mind. Well, they're fulfilling the very thing Paul said would happen in the last days. In the last days, you would have people in the church that wouldn't want to hear sound doctrine, healthy teaching from God's word, but would gather themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them what they wanted to hear. There wouldn't be a market for false prophets if, I mean, false prophets wouldn't be around if there wasn't a market for them. And why is there a market for them? Listen to me. Because years ago, the church lowered its standard to bring in unbelievers and make them feel comfortable, and unbelievers want their ears tickled. If you didn't mess with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and just preach the whole truth of God, didn't water it down, didn't use it to placate, to draw folks in, because you want to build a big church, you know, the church today is infested with religious unbelievers, and a large part of the problem is churches have opened their doors, and the way they have orchestrated their ministries... Uh, they have basically appealed to these people to come in and then made them feel good about being there. And they've deleted from the teaching of the word all the stuff about sin and judgment and holiness and so on. Why? Because we don't want to offend and drive them out of here. It took a lot of time to get them in here. And so you have a lot of carnal minds in churches across America, unsaved people, and they don't want to hear healthy teaching from God's word about the cross and dying to self. They want to be told how they can be wealthy and healthy and prosperous and God, how God's going to give them all the goodies they want. Maybe you saw in the news this week that Kenneth Copeland, probably the best known word of faith preacher in the world, just acquired, or I should say his ministry just acquired a new $36 million private jet. When asked why he needs another jet, I don't know how many he's got. He's got at least two. He said that flying commercial would require him to rub elbows with, and I'm quoting him, a long tube of demons. And probably real folks that would like him to maybe to pray for them because they support his ministry. He doesn't care about those folks. He just cares about the money they send into that ministry. I dug around a little bit, found an article by an author who uh, who said of Kenneth Copeland, Copeland leads the Believer's Voice of Victory TV show and network. Um, He's a giant within the Word of Faith branch of Pentecostalism. Kenneth Copeland Ministries operates on a 1,500-acre campus near Fort Worth, Texas, Equipped with equipped with a church, a private airstrip, and a hangar for the ministry's 17.5 million jet. So there's another one there. And other aircraft it says. Copeland resides with his wife Gloria in a six million dollar church owned lakefront mansion. Now, if you're wondering what Copeland is worth, I dug around and found that out too. Kenneth Copeland is worth, are you ready? 7 Hundred and sixty million million. He boasted on YouTube that he was a billionaire. Benny Hinn, worth $42 million. Joel Osteen, worth $40 million. And Creflo Dollar, who needs to change his name to Creflo Dollar times $27 million, is $27 million net worth. Now, that's a far cry from Jesus. Who said in Luke 9.58, The foxes have holes to live in, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When they crucified our Lord, all he had to his name were the clothes on his back. All he had to his name were the clothes on his back. I thought he was the one we were supposed to emulate. I thought he was the one we were supposed to pattern our lives after. The one who said, I haven't come to be served but to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many. Ministry, guys, is all about being a servant to all. Not a celebrity, a servant to all. And the local church should be a place where people people can go to find God and worship God and not have their hunger to know God exploited by crooked preachers who seek to make merchandise off of them. Turn to 1 Peter 5. This is the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Peter, who was an elder in the church, he exhorts now fellow elders. He said, and now a word to you who are elders in the church I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. I, as a fellow elder, I appeal to you. Care for the flock of God Excuse me, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you can get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people of God assigned to you to your care, but lead them by your own good example. Well, of course, getting back to Jesus' day, the Sadducees and the chief priests who basically ran the temple concessions, and everything about it, were greedy, corrupt men who did turn the worship of God into a money-making business, which is, again, why Jesus referred to the temple as a den of thieves, Matthew 21, 13. Of course, these guys were cut from the same cloth the corrupt prophets and priests uh, were in the Old Testament. And I won't have you turn to this. I'll let you read it on your own. Ezekiel 34, uh, basically um, 1 to 10 where God is indicting the shepherds of Israel. Now these are the priests, the prophets, the spiritual leaders. They were supposed to be shepherds to God's people. Being a shepherd was a very difficult job and it was a very selfless job because the sheep had to come first. They were completely helpless, uh, completely vulnerable to enemies. The shepherd had to be on guard constantly, watching a lot of Uh, love and self-sacrifice went into being a shepherd of sheep. That was the same heart that God wanted uh, a a king or a spiritual leader in the Old Testament to exercise toward his sheep. Remember how Saul was a disaster, King Saul? Selfish man. And what did God do? He replaced him with what? A shepherd, David. Because God knew that the same heart that would go into shepherding real sheep would be the same heart he would would want to... for for a leader to shepherd his sheep, his people, but um, these these shepherds, these spiritual leaders back then, didn't care about the sheep. God indicts them. He said, you know what? You don't you don't feed the sheep. You don't love my sheep. You in fact you fleece the sheep. You're only in it for the money you can get from the sheep. You don't care if they wander away or they're torn up by an animal. You don't go over there and bind them up and and heal them. All you care about is you, know, you, you, eat, you uh, eat the meat, you clothe yourself with the wool. You don't care. And because you're not teaching my people the truth, my people are scattered on every mountain and high hill. And that was a reference to the false worship because they would worship these pagan deities on the high places. And God is telling the spiritual leaders, because you're not feeding my people the truth, They're looking for spiritual truth in all kinds of other ungodly ways. Just like today. A lot of pastors are not teaching their people the word of God. And so now what are they into? Looking for spiritual truth in yoga, contemplative prayer, all kinds of other Hinduism, which has been brought into the church and Christianized. Why? Because people, churches, pastors, leaders are not teaching God's word in its entirety. They give a little lip service, read a verse or two, launch off into a sermon on anecdotes and personal experiences. No wonder God's people are starving and looking for food anywhere they can find it. Spiritual food. God said, I'm against the shepherds of Israel. I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep. The shepherds shall feed themselves no more for I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. And God went and said to, through Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, there's coming a day when I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. The knowledge of me and understanding of my word, because as Jesus would say, the good shepherd, when he finally came, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Make you free from false doctrine." God's people will never get misled into false doctrine if they're being fed the truth. So that's what the church is not to be. A money-making business, a place where pastors are really celebrities uh, who are looking to make money off the people. No. What is the church then to be? First of all, it's to be a house of prayer. Now, let me just say this. We can spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this subject, what is the church to be? Uh, If you're interested, several years ago we did a series called What in the World is the Church? You can go online... uh, um, calvaryradio.org find it in our topical messages uh, if you want to get into this in detail I'm just going to limit uh, our look at what the church is to be from the passage in John and then in Matthew, Mark and Luke and turn to Matthew 21 In Matthew 21, verse 12, we read, Then Jesus went into the the temple of God, drove out those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Very simply, guys, what is the church to be? First of all, it's to be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. Here Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 7, where where twice in one verse God calls his temple a house of prayer. Notice, he didn't call it a house of business networking. We have lost people to bigger churches because they were able to network better with their business. He didn't say, my house is to be a house of business networking. He didn't say, God's house is to be a house of self-help programs or a house of counseling, or a house of entertainment. He said, the Lord's house is to be called a house of prayer. Now, certainly the church is more than just prayer. In fact, when we did that study, what in the world is the church? We looked at uh, Acts 2.42 primarily, which said, uh, and they continued, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Very simple, very simple formula that the early church walked in. Worked pretty well for them. Um, they converted the no, most of the known world to Christ in the first three centuries. So it was working for them pretty good. But, you know, studying the Word of God, fellowshipping with the saints, breaking bread in communion, and in prayers, all of these guys are legitimate and important functions of the local church. But when Jesus talked about this main thing, he says, you know, Above and beyond anything else. The Father's house is to be a house of prayer. The local church is to be a house of prayer. Um, Jesus was emphasizing this important truth. He could have gone into all the things the church should be doing. You know, it was articulated in Acts 2.42. He knew that. But by saying this, he was emphasizing a very important truth that our Heavenly Father desires to commune with us and to meet our needs, which is one of the ways he demonstrates his love for us. And prayer guides is what opens the windows of heaven and allows God to pour out on our lives all he desires to give us, all the blessings he wants us to have, because as a father, you know, good parents want to bless their kids. This really is escalated to a, you have grandkids. My granddaughter has me wrapped around her little finger. I know it. She knows it. (laughs) Come to my house. You open up the cupboards. There's bags of treats. Yeah. Anyway. The Father wants to pour out onto the lives of his children blessings. And prayer is the vehicle by which those blessings flow. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? He was was, uh, reinforcing the importance of prayer. He said, you know, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And then he says, you earthly fathers, you know, if your kids ask for something like a piece of bread or a fish or, or something, you don't give them, you know, a rock and a scorpion and stuff like that. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more so will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now hold on to that thought. It's going to dovetail into the next thing we want to talk about. But God wants to pour upon us blessings. But also, because prayer brings us into direct contact with God, it allows his power to flow from him into and then through our lives. Remember what James said, James 5, 16. He said, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and accomplishes wonderful Things, or as he says, has great power and produces wonderful results. Prayer is like a um, okay, for lack of a better term, a garden hose that you hook up to the faucet. Right? Once you hook it up to the faucet, open the spigot and the water flows. Prayer connects us to God, and we're connected through Christ already. I'm talking about at a practical level, everyday thing. When you pray, you are being connected to God, which allows the Holy Spirit to flow through us. Uh, you know, we're, 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 we're to be uh, fountains giving living water. We're to be, you know, the, the hose that God uses the water, uh, those around you. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is poured out through our lives. Listen to me. Prayer. No great work of God has ever been accomplished apart from prayer. No great work of God will ever be done without prayer. Not in your walk with God, or your marriage, or or the lives of your kids, or our church as a whole. If you're struggling, if your marriage is rocky, if you have a wayward child, if you want to see this church rise up in more power, how much are you praying? I, I can't underscore that. You know, it's so basic, people are like, why are you even telling us this? We know this. Peter says, I want to put you in remembrance of what you already know. Because we stumble at the basics. They're so simple, we forget sometimes. Let me just say this to you. Prayer has become the neglected neglected weapon in the Christian arsenal. Prayer has become the neglected weapon in the Christian arsenal. One pastor put it this way: churches today are packed for concerts or potlucks or special events, but announce a prayer meeting and a few faithful saints trickle in, end quote. Well, that's not true with our church. Although, could we do better? Yeah. But twice a year we set aside five days where we fast and all day long, and we come to church every night, Monday through Friday, to pray. And I can't tell you. How many times we have packed that room out. In fact, we've outgrown it. Now we have to meet in the big room. Because you folks, God has burdened you for prayer. Somebody once said, you can tell how popular a church is by how many attend Sunday morning services. You can tell how popular a pastor is by who comes in Wednesday night for service. You can always tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meetings. I mean, and again, I'm speaking in general terms, no wonder the church is so powerless. It's because, for the most part, it's so prayerless. Years ago, I was listening to a study by Dr. Charles Stanley on prayer. He said something I'll never forget, and I've written it down. I'll read it to you. Pastor Stanley said, and I quote, If people in America would spend one-tenth of the time on their knees that they spend watching TV... God would bring about an awakening in America that would shake every square inch of this globe. It is a sin for Christians who have heard the gospel over and over and have seen God answer prayer to sit down and watch one, two, three, or even four hours of TV filling their mind with the world and then crawl into bed and whisper, Lord, bless me tomorrow, help me with my job, bless my family, take care of my kids, supply my needs in Jesus' name as they drift off to sleep. The church is to be a house of prayer. Number two, the church is to be a place of worship. Matthew 21, 13, Jesus said it, again. we just read it, Jesus in my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. The word prayer there, guys, in verse 13, is the general word for making requests known to the Lord, i.e. prayer. But the Greek word also carries with it the idea of adoration, devotion, or in other words, worship. So not only is the church to be a house of prayer, it's also to be a place of worship. Didn't Jesus say that to the woman by the well of Samaria in John 4? He said, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For listen, the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Now look, we will save that when we get to John 4. Because we'll have a lot to say about worship then. So I'll just save any further comment on worship until that time. Let me just say this, though. You talk about worship and you ask the average Christian, well, what is is worship? Singing songs to God. Yes, it is, but that's by no means the extent of it. It's a lot more involved than just singing songs to God. So again, guys, first of all, the the, the church, which is the temple of the living God today, is to be a place of prayer, a place of worship. Number three, the church is to be a healing place. A healing place. Back in Matthew 21... After we read in verse 12 how Jesus, you know, drove the animals out and turned over the money uh, tables and chased all the merchandising out. Verse 14, it says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When I say that the church is to be a healing place, I don't mean primarily physical healing. Although, I believe God, and I know he does because I've seen it, God still heals many today from physical infirmities. And certainly in verse 14, um, when it says that Jesus healed the blind and lame, uh, obviously the, the uh, inference is physically blind and physically lame. But think about this. And again, I have challenged you guys to read your Bibles like detectives. Be very sensitive to things. Now, do you think Jesus only healed blind people and lame people? You think he had a sign out in front of the temple that said, you know, only the blind and lame. I don't deal with anybody else. No, of course, he healed all kinds of people. Demon-possessed, paralyzed. So why did the Holy Spirit make it a point to say he healed the blind and the lame when we know he healed all kinds of other diseases? The Holy Spirit will often edit things to get you thinking in a bigger way. Get you thinking maybe more spiritually. Not that this wasn't physical healing. But when I read these words, and it's limited to just the blind and the lame, you know what I think? I think the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that there is a healing going on in the temple back then and in the church today that goes beyond the physical. We, I, I would think, and I, this is where I'm coming from, that what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us that, that is when the church of Jesus Christ is all that God wants it to be, not perfect, but is all that God wants it to be, it will be a place where the spiritually blind and spiritually lame can come and be healed. The spiritually blind, guys, will be a reference to unbelievers. And the lame could be a reference to believers, I mean, whose walk is somehow impaired maybe by sin or some emotional trauma or depression, which is listen, crippled their walk with the Lord. So from that we can we can say that the church we know is to be a place of evangelism. Where people who are blind, spiritually speaking, come to church, hear the got the true gospel, maybe for the first time, we have a pastor, Calvary guy who took up over a church in Round Lake, not a Calvary, Boy, did God have to, wow, what he went through before God cleaned house up there. Church was like 113 years old. Some of the original members, I think, were still there. Uh, one woman was 90 years old had been coming to the church for 50 years. After the pastor preached a couple of Sundays and, of course, wove the gospel into his preaching, she comes to him and says, Pastor, I've never heard that before. You've been in church 50 years, you've never heard the gospel I'm just dumbfounded. There are people who are blind. Some of them even go to church. It's the truth that sets you free. Didn't Jesus say that? If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It will open your eyes. You will know the truth. The church is to be a place of evangelism, but indirectly. Because as we just teach the word of God, people are going to get saved. But actually, we're pointing to the teaching at God's people, Ephesians 4. I don't see the, place, the church as is, uh, is a place where we target unbelievers every week as if they're really the focus. No, you're the focus. I mean, Jesus, of course, is the ultimate focus. But the church is a place where God's people are fed God's word. They're strengthened. They're built up. And they go out into the world and evangelize. Now, once in a while, you get a few unbelievers straggling in. Praise God. And as we're teaching the word, God begins to work. And many times people get saved just because they heard the word of God. So the church is to be a place where the word is taught, people's eyes are opened. um, And uh, they are made to see for the first time that life has a purpose. We are being told life has no purpose. You're just the result of cosmic accidents, accidents genetic mutations all started by a big bang 12 billion years ago there, there's no God there's no ultimate purpose for existing so what does that do it, it creates a very kind of a hedonistic approach to life eat drink and be merry this is all there is you only go around once in life grab for all the gusty you can and that's how many unbelievers live their lives completely empty all about you know partying sex Drugs, just, you know, doing whatever they can do to make themselves kind of happy. And... But that gets old, doesn't it? How many people in this room live that way, self-included? We did all that. And there came a point where, you know what, it wasn't, it wasn't working anymore. In fact, the alcohol, the drugs, now we were in bondage to that. It was killing us. And somebody dragged us to church, or we saw a church on the corner, we dragged ourselves in. Or turned on a TV and saw a, a gospel program. And we heard the gospel. And God opened our eyes. The scales fell. For the first time in our lives, we knew the truth. That we were made on purpose, for a purpose, by a God who loved us and gave us an eternal purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.1, God has put eternity in our hearts. And it takes a lot of years of secular pounding to pound that out of us, to make us think that this is the only life that's that there is. But guys, also, as we bring this to a close, a spirit-filled church is to be a place where the spiritually lame, eyes open, speaks of evangelism, what about a place where the lame are healed? Well, I think this could be the Holy Spirit's way of telling us he's talking about believers now who are weak, weary, broken, downtrodden, uh, where they can come to church and, and, and know that they're not going to be judged. They're not going to be put down. They're going to be um, raised up. They're, you're going to have people, that a good church, a spirit-filled church, When somebody whose life has been devastated through sin, can a Christian sin their way into oblivion? Pretty much. I have seen Christians who have committed suicide because they got so far away from God, so far into the sin again, that the devil just told them it's hopeless kill yourself. And they have. But thank God, many, in a last-ditch attempt to be set free again, will come to church. And when they do, what they need to find is a place of people who will love them, who will not kick them on their job, but will stoop down to raise them up, to encourage them, to show them love, to put their arm around them and say, look, I was where you are. The same. I was an alcoholic, but God delivered me. Come on, let me help you. I'll keep you accountable. I'll walk with you until you're strong enough to walk on your own. Turn to Galatians 6.1. Paul's talking about this very subject in Galatians 6. And let's just look at verses 1 and 2. Paul said, Brethren, if any man or if a man is overtaken... A Christian person is the idea. A brother in Christ. If any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in the, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 1, if any Christian is overtaken in any trespass, the Greek word means caught up or tripped up. Once you're set free from sin, can the devil trip you up again? Yeah. That's why Paul says walk circumspectly, redeeming the time, the days are evil. The Greek is... Set a course right down the middle and make sure you look to the right or left. Don't step off the path. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Make a path right down the word of God. Just keep walking straight. Overtaken, caught up, tripped up, trespass. This doesn't refer, guys, to a long-term thing. Paul is not talking about somebody who comes to the church was is living in sin. Uh, has been for years. He's talking about a person who wants to walk with God but gets tripped up, okay? Uh, Gets caught up in a sin again, okay? They love God, and they really do want to walk with God, but now they're in bondage again. And what we're supposed to do is, we are supposed to, who are spiritual, not that we, you know, he didn't say the ones who say they're spiritual. He said, you who are spiritual, how do you know you're really spiritual, filled with spirit? Because God's love is flowing through you. God's love is flowing through you. And you're going to want to stoop down and help restore a brother or sister who has fallen. Men with men, women with women. For those folks who want to walk with God and do occasionally fall back into sin, um, again, spiritual people want to encourage them, love them in an effort to restore them. Um, Verse 1 again. Well, let me just back up and say this. Those folks who come to church but don't really want to walk with God, you know, they're living in sin. We don't know it. But eventually somebody tells us, and we, uh, we approach them. And we confront them with the sin. Sometimes they will repent, and great, we've gained a brother or a sister back. Because they're not being blessed by God. I mean, you know, we're, we don't know what's going on. God does. They're living together or something else. But if they say and this has happened to us when we've had to confront people who were having an affair, and they basically have told us, "Well, we just believe this is of God." So we say, "You know what? you can't fellowship anymore." Because we have a responsibility to the whole body. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. If a church starts looking the other way with regard to sin in its midst, that sin will spread. God won't bless that church anymore. And a church that is too weak to purge itself of the poison that is within it is a church that's going to grow weaker and weaker until it finally dies. That's where the Bible says that we are to keep each other accountable, and so on. I'm talking about those, though, not who are walking in willful sin. I'm talking about those who desperately want to walk with God but have something that is hindering or crippling them in their walk. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, listen, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The Greek word for restore is a word that means to put in order so as to restore to its former condition. It was used in secular Greek, that word, as a medical term for setting a broken bone setting a broken bone, putting it back to the way it was originally designed to be. It's the same word that it was used in Mark 1.19 of the apostles who were, listen, mending their nets, mending their nets. The church is to be a place where people can come who have been beaten up by the world. Unbelievers, maybe backslidden Christians. And they come into this place, and they need a spiritual triage unit. They need uh, a spiritual um, trauma center. They they don't need people to say, well, you know what the word says. Why'd you do it? That was pretty stupid. The guy's bleeding and, you know, half dead, and, you know, you're kicking the guy. There's plenty of time to kind of reason with him down the road about his life choices. But right now, he needs you to stoop down pick him or her up, bind up their wounds, begin to just love on them, and let God begin to work a healing. Now, guys, listen to me. We have prayed for many years that God would make our church a healing place. And I believe it is to a great degree. Could we do better? Of course. But if God is going to begin to work in a mighty way, and you're going to see people coming in that honestly, before you knew Christ, you would never hang around with. With body piercings over the place, orange or purple hair, wearing clothes that you have no idea where they could have possibly gotten that outfit from. When they walk in that door, if you're going to gasp in horror and run the other way, this isn't going to be a healing place. When they come walking in that door, you can see on the look on their face, they are really hurting. And what they need is somebody to walk over to them. Introduce yourself. I say, we're glad you're here. Sit down. Let me try to help you. Let me tell you about our church, the ministries we have, and so on. That's where the healing begins, right there. Right there. But what so often happens is when people like that walk into a church, they're met with condescension. Dirty Looks. When God was working in the hippies back in the 60s, and a lot of these kids, God was tugging on their heart to go to church. They had never been to church. But God was tugging on their hearts to come to church to know Jesus. And I've heard this firsthand from people that this happened to. Some of these kids would walk, drive up to a church, come walking in with their their tie-dyed t-shirts and bell-bottom jeans and sandals, bare feet. They were stopped at the door by deacons who told them, when you cut your hair, when you change your clothes, you come on back. Many of them didn't come back. They didn't feel loved. Some of them found their way to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, where they were accepted for who they were. In fact, it spawned a song, I think by, well, Mike knows this love, love song, I think it was. Little Country Church on the edge of town. Calvary Chapel started in a little country church. And one line goes, long hair, short hair, uh, suits and ties, sitting next to the kid with the long hair and the tie-dyed t-shirt, didn't matter. All that mattered was that God was pouring His love. That's all it that mattered. You walked into that church and the healing began. I don't care what you were going through. Instantly, the healing began because people were all about Jesus. They weren't about, oh, Bill, you, what kind of an outfit is that, or or you know whatever, looking down on a person because they weren't dressed the way that they dressed. The church is to be a house of prayer. The church is to be a place where God is worshipped in spirit and truth. Number three, the church is to be a healing place. God willing, we'll continue, probably finish next week in this section. and um, May God give us grace to be all that He wants us to be so that we can do all that He desires us to do for His name. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness, Your grace. Father, You've You reached down and saved us. Who are we to cop an attitude now with any unbeliever that comes walking into this church as if we're so, what, holy and righteous that we can't be bothered? Father, if there's any of that in this church, please, in Jesus' name, drive it out. And pour your agape love into this church like never before. That, Father, it doesn't matter who walks through those doors, we won't gasp, we will rejoice we might be a healing church father we thank you we ask all this in jesus precious name amen